Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined again by Dr. Benjamin Baker. Thanks so much for talking with us again. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I wasn't sure that you would have me back after the first installment. (laughs) Well, I heard a lot of high praise for the answers that you provided for everyone on sort of the early Millerite uh, movement uh, through the... Uh, 19th century and helping us understand the role of African Americans in the formation of the Adventist church. So we're starting with uh, the uh, 20th century here. So I'm looking forward to exploring that with you. Likewise. Before we get started here, um, we're, I thought I would read a line from Seeking a Sanctuary to sort of frame our discussion as you take us through uh, over 100 years and help us understand um, what's happening and, and who the players are. The, the, the sentence here that, uh, that kicks off the chapter is, the major difference between Adventism and American society is that there are fewer whites and more blacks than in the general population. So my question for you is, what has made Black Adventism flourish? Very, very fruitful question. First, I want to give props to Malcolm Bull and Keith Lockhart for Seeking a Sanctuary. Alex, that book has provided the intellectual substrate of really an entire generation of Adventist historians And we were talking before we went live about how certain uh, writers, certain scholars have moved the conversation, have shifted the conversation and allowed for historians like me and others, so many others to navigate freely, let's say, um, Adventist historiography or or, or rather freely. And so I, I do wanna give a shout out to Seeking a Sanctuary because that's one of those formative books that I would credit Alex with talking about Adventism in a certain way. Yeah. Was there a book like that before that? I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about Adventism in a certain way, sociological and intellectual and framing it in the wider milieu, the wider context and making accurate observations. That's not always evident in Adventist historiography proper. Yeah. So I want to say that. A true cultural history. What's that? A true cultural history. Yes, a cultural history. Cultural history of Adventism. And there's been some other good ones as well, like uh, Michael Pearson, mm-hmm. Millennial Dreams. And so there's there been some that followed, but that book was really foundational. And they have a superb chapter on race. Yeah. Which I think that's the one you read from. Yeah. And so this is, this is a, a genuine classic because it has stood the test of time. Yep. You still read it. Some things, are, I was thinking it was first published in 18, uh, 88, 1988. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but some of the things are a little antiquated, but the analysis is still shrewd and it still stands. So that to me is a true classic. Okay. Getting to your, getting to your question. I think in North America, right now, we probably have between 250 to 300,000 Blacks, mm. Black Adventists. Okay. 
And the, the scene is truly dynamic because, you know, that there, there are these different movements and I'm only mentioning the movements for nomenclature. So there's ADOS, American Descendants of Slaves, mm-hmm. and FBA, Foundational Black Americans. Mm-hmm. And the, these are sorts of groups that now have nomenclature to indicate, okay, we descended from slaves and indigenous people, and we built this nation. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of in distinction from other Africans from the diaspora who have come to North America from the mm-hmm. Caribbean, from Africa. And so there, there's always been this dynamic in, in Adventism, but now with the black population, it is truly diverse. The black population in North America is truly diverse and international. Yeah. Okay, so this is, th- this dynamic has always existed, but not like this before. Okay, so when we think about blacks, uh, black Adventists in North America, it is truly a diasporic membership. Okay, so that that should be noted. I mean, some some churches that were traditionally, you know, we always talk about white flight and mm-hmm. blacks coming in and whites leaving. Sure. Um, now you may have a church that was traditionally FBA that's now almost entirely Caribbean. Sure. Or Caribbean descended in the United States. Yeah. Very, very interesting dynamic. So we need to factor that in and we can't totally speak of uh, an American phenomenon per se. Okay. Uh, And I'll just loop in there. I know we're going to get to that question here, but I want to point out that you have uh, cultural um, differences. Language, I think, is really interesting in the way that language um, as an identity marker shifts through generations as well in that. So I... You know, I, I think you're really helping us understand the scope of what we're talking about now. Why why is it so good in so many ways? Well, you know, I, I've spoken on this at length because we we have to watch out for tribalism, mm-hmm. and, and I'm very careful talking about this. Yeah, because already in the diaspora, you have blacks representing different countries mm-hmm. and you have blacks representing different ethnic groups within those countries. So there's nothing wrong with ADOS or FBA saying, Hey, we have a distinct American heritage, Alex, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we built this nation basically for free on our backs. It was blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with identifying that, but I, I do think that we have to make sure that it doesn't become fractious. Yeah. And I do think that we need to, to underscore how from the very beginning, Adventism in America was built up by Blacks from everywhere. Mm. Okay. We think of, to me, some of the most important Black Adventists like G.E. Peters, um, J.K. Humphrey, so many others, so many builders of Black Adventism in America were from the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And we can go on and on and on. Sure. And so, you know, the we, we cannot uh, bifurcate or fracture that history. But to answer your question, we, we're looking at about 250 to 300,000 Blacks, Black Adventists in North America. These numbers are relatively small, Alex, compared to 
traditionally black denominations mm-hmm. like the African Methodist Episcopal, AME Zion, um, AMEC, uh, the Church of God in Christ, several Pentecostal denominations, uh, the National Baptist Convention. So these have millions of, uh, of blacks. So Adventism is still rather, rather small. And so when you talk about um, black Adventists, I think, and, and historians before me have made this observation, it was an acquired taste. And it was for a, I don't want to say a certain type of, of black person, but let's say that you're in the South in the 1890s or early 1900s, you are taking upon yourself another form of discrimination by becoming a Seventh-day Adventist. Because this is a Yankee denomination from the North. Yeah. And even white Southern Adventists were talking about the discrimination. They were being mobbed and violence was being perpetrated on them when they accepted Seventh-day Adventism. Hmm. So imagine how this was for Blacks. And they didn't have the community because, you know, a lot of Blacks were Baptists Mm -hmm. or Methodists or what have you. So they didn't have that community. So, Alex, they're taking on them another form of discrimination. And they're saying things like this, Alex. They're saying, I was convicted of the Seventh-day Sabbath truth. So this is a really cerebral. Yeah. I I, I mean, you know, you don't get many black converts talking about, well, it was the worship service that got me. You know, the, the, the emotion or the passion in the worship services, although that, that sometimes plays a role. Sure. You know, I mean, this, this is not um, like, 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 a, like an ecstatic experience, you know, with the Azusa Street Revival. Yeah. You don't see that sort of thing. It's more of like a cerebral type conversion or let's say moral integrity. Yeah. They're saying this jived with what I understood in the Bible. Okay. Another thing that I want to point out, and that is that Blacks have always been called a, a, a people of eschatology. Okay, and we could talk about why that's the case. I think it's because of the oppressive conditions in America. Sure. I don't think anybody would be apocalyptic or eschatological if we lived in a perfect world. Why would you want Jesus to come? And yeah. so some, some um, cultural historians and religious historians have said that the level of oppression and your apocalypticism is directly in concert. So those people who are very oppressed tend to be very apocalyptic because they can't appeal to the normal political mechanisms mm-hmm. to obtain freedom, justice, yeah. whatever. And so they say, Jesus is coming to judge y'all. He's going to liberate us and judge you. Okay, so there's a, there's a direct connection there. Now, more specifically to your question as to why more Blacks have accepted Adventism than than white people. Why, 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 why the, why the, the, in that ratio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's a tough one. I would say definitely the apocalypse angle. I would definitely, there, there have been many blacks who uh, I would say because of, um, and, and I don't want to totally secularize this, but there is some respectability politics that I think are at play. Uh, Adventism were very educational oriented hmm. and blacks, 
placed a premium on this. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying above whites, but I'm saying whites normally had that, Alex. Sure. <laughs> okay. Like it was never against the law for them to learn how to read. Mm-hmm. Okay. They were never kept out of colleges because of their race. Yeah. But blacks were. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there was a, there was a respectability that Adventism, they say the second you get baptized, you go to college. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there is an intellectual, there is a true people of the book ethos within Adventism. And I think that that was very attractive to blacks. I think that there's a long tradition, uh, and this is, this is ill remarked upon of blacks and abstemiousness, Alex, abstemiousness. So this is, this is the racist thought in the thirties and forties. Negro, you must perform your way to respectability by whites sure. and freedom from whites. Come on now, Alex. <laughs> you, you must give up tobacco. This is different from white um, temperance, mm-hmm. different from white temperance, even though there's species of it that's just, that it's the same. But you must give up cigarette, give up tobacco and give up alcohol so that you'll be worthy of the high regard of whites. Yeah. And you will, and, and, and even we can free ourselves from slavery if the slave, if the enslaved blacks just act better. Sure. That's the height of racism, man. That, you know, you, yeah. that's, that's, you know, that, that's one of those things when you're reading that in history and you just get angry. Yeah. Like what in the world? Like th- th- these are things that aren't even up for debate. Mm-hmm. I, I'm saying, you know, I, I don't have to perform my way to, so that you as a white person can feel better about me. Mm-hmm. But there's a long history of that. Yeah. Adventism appealed to that. Mm-hmm. I can show you explicit cases where the Adventist rhetoric was, was exactly like that. Okay. Um, that's, another, the, that's the flip side of that kind of middle class, um, unacknowledged racism that uh, is tied up in the kind of up by your bootstraps. You definitely. kind of, you prove that you are worthy of being part of our society and then will deign to in some way include. So, and, and precisely. And, and you would hear even from black evangelists, early black evangelists, you would hear this. Hmm. We have made great strides among the better class of oh, black people. Yeah. Now, you heard that among whites, too, mm-hmm. because everybody wants the better class. And this is yeah. the age of eugenics and all this stuff. Sure. So, but the better class of black people have been very receptive to us. Mm. And that is this respectability yeah. that, you know, we're, we're attracting more educated, more refined, more civilized people. So I would say that's in it. I would also attribute the higher ratio of blacks to whites to Black evangelists. Hmm. I mean, the, the, the Adventist evangelists, I think, have been especially gifted. And this is just on the meme. Mm-hmm. I'm not even speaking of the, the extreme outliers like your C.D. Brooks or your E.E. E. Cleveland or what have you. Yeah. I'm talking about just the average. Hmm. I mean, if you look at these evangelism totals uh, in the 40s and 50s, you know, you see things like, you know, 60 as an average, you know, per year, whatever, 80, a hundred and something. And so that's also a factor. And then I would, I would definitely attribute it to regional conferences because this is, as Leslie Pollard says, he uses the term mission particularity. Mm-hmm. It, it, it wasn't going to happen. I think the explosion of the black membership 
when black blacks were not being prioritized by whites okay for for evangelization for proselytization mm -hmm. so with, with the regional conferences we can specifically focus on the neglected black population to try to reach them and bring them into adventism and that focus made all the difference we can start schools now to where we educate black evangelists and teachers and so you know i mean this starts feeding off of each other and starts and starts growing so th those would be some of the reasons but that's not by any means all of it well i'm so glad you brought up uh regional conferences let's get around to those in, uh, later on because i think they're an important part of understanding this history i want to jump back a little bit and um Last time we were talking about the, the Civil War and then Reconstruction and Edson White and the Morning Star, um, but I want to pick up this uh, this story. Perhaps if you'll lead us into the 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 growth of Oakwood now University and E. e. Cleveland and help us understand that the the sort of foundations for what we then see i think with the story of the regional conferences enough enough power that they were able and enough sense of mission that they were able to actually create something uh that was in many ways their uh you know a, a place for them to flourish is that yes. fair yes yes oakwood was was definitely established in the age of HBCUs, yeah. historically black colleges and universities. And when you look, actually Wikipedia has a really, I, I don't like referring to that as a scholar, but Wikipedia <laughs> has like a really good, they have all of the HBCUs in the years they were founded. So when you look at, you know, 1896, this is like really the height of a lot of foundings of the HBC, foundings of HBCUs. And so Oakwood must be looked at in that light. And it is the very normal context. I wish that I could say that it was different, that it was in some way extraordinary, but we are establishing this because blacks really aren't welcome anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, Alex, I defy someone to disagree with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's, there, there's no other, there yeah. won't be a revisionist historian that comes along later <laughs> with a different story. Like that, that's, that's exactly, you know, else why couldn't they be integrated into other, other existing schools? Now we could talk about uh, place and so why did why was Oakwood established in Huntsville, Alabama? Yeah, uh, this is one of the points I think that's not much talked about. And Mervyn Warren discusses this in his book Oakwood: A Vision Splendid, and it's available to your listeners for free online. Just Google it; it's available for free. And the great black, the early black evangelist Charles Kinney, he actually provided the the foundation for Adventism in Huntsville, Alabama. He was there doing his normal itinerary. He would go from door to door in the colored community. He would be giving Bible studies. He would have his Adventist literature and he was call putter. He was giving Bible studies, all of this stuff, giving talks. And he recommended to the general conference, Dan Smith and others, the secretary and others, that this would be a good place for Adventism's HBCU, okay? It wasn't called that back then, of course, because this was a pocket of progressivism in the South. Hmm. Even back then, Huntsville was. Um, of course, later, it would, it would become even more progressive with the rocket industry. 
even though Werner von Braun was a Nazi, but we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> My Huntsville people will understand that. You know, you know, von Braun is the man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it, it later would become that. But even then, um, Huntsville was sort of like a, a crossroads of the South, and it was more progressive. It was convenient to Nashville, which was an hour and a half away. It was convenient to Chattanooga, mm-hmm. which was an hour, like an hour and a half away. Okay, so you have like a triangle in the South that Ellen White often talks about. And so uh, Adventism needed a place. It, it was almost like you get baptized as a Black Adventist and you need to go to school either to be a teacher, a minister, or a nurse. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but above all, you need something that's practical and that can earn you money. Yeah. And so I would say that a looming figure in the history of Oakwood is Booker T. Washington. Hmm. Because, and there's a, there's a direct connection. I mean, you know, everybody was modeling their schools at, at school after Booker T. Washington's uh, Tuskegee. And this is about what, maybe three hours south of, of Oakwood. And so they're using this, Alex, this uh, work study program. Which Adventists loved anyway, because Ellen yes. White was all about that. Yes, definitely. And that that's actually one of those things that dovetailed with Black education. Because um, in the South, you know, excuse me, in the North, you know, they're, they're still kind of moving away from the Latin and the Greek and the sort of things that may not be that practical. But in the South, where it's agricultural based, it was almost very practical from the start. Okay, so this is this is where Adventist com- uh, Oakwood comes from, and it's sort of what uh, the Southern Missionary Society, James Edson White and his group, they sort of served as a theater school to Oakwood. So it opens in 1896, and there are like 16 students initially, and this is one of those historical things that was by no means Adventist triumphalism wants to make the success of everything inevitable. But this was by no means that, you know, it was founded upon, uh, Oka was founded on a slave plantation. I think the Beasley plantation where horrific acts had happened. The soil was really hard and rocky. Uh, The initial years did not have much funding because Ellen White had many statements to say about how the white leaders were robbing, literally robbing. Uh, the black field of of their offerings and things uh, that people were specifically earmarking for the black work. And so the early years were by no means promising, but there was, as with so many other HBCUs, people that were just really dedicated to the school. And this is this is the story of Oakwood, I think, more than more than a lot of other schools. You didn't have careerist, Alex. You had people who really cared about the school and who would stay there, you know, for 30, 40 years. It wasn't the big shot careers that came in and out. Sure. It was those people like Eva B. Dykes when she got her PhD uh, in 1921. Why in the world did she go to Oakwood just a little later and just stayed there for what, the next 40, 50 years? Okay, so I think that it was it was people like this and then uh, really dedicated students who had this, there is this ethos back in that day of gratitude hmm. for a higher education. 
not I deserve this or I'm going to take this and once again get a good career, but I'm going to really use this to serve because that was that formative period of an ethos of blacks help blacks. Mm -hmm. We are in this situation in the South where there are white terrorists everywhere. Yeah. We are being systematically undermined for any sort of progress. So we really need to help ourselves. That wasn't getting a degree and getting a, a, a sinecure at a white university was not an option. Yeah. That was like all you had for you was to help other blacks. Mm -hmm. And so that that is what I would say is like the sort of the, the history and the context of Oakwood. That I like that idea of kind of being mission driven and also that investment back into the community. It's growing, it's starting to develop, it's building a reputation. And I think that HSBC, you, um, uh, I, you know, connection in many ways, it's the university that has um, a kind of larger outside Adventism reputation. Um, just because of its, it, because of the larger um, historically black college and university uh, connection, um, you know. So um, let's let's and, 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 and Alex, yeah, if please I can make this thing real quick, jump in because there there are some other reasons for that. I would say the music is a big thing. Yeah, the aliens. Yeah, and it's it was always the case with HBCUs that whites and blacks but in the early years whites like with the, with the fisk jubilee singers of course fisk is a hbcu in nashville mm -hmm. and the music was an avenue for prominence and to really give the hbcus an, an oversized stage and so i believe it was night okay so before leading up to the 1940s you have all these chorales and acapella groups and traveling, you know, musical acts at Oakwood. Okay, but in 1946, I believe, Eva B. Dykes founded the Aeolians. That's an interesting story because she was steeped in English literature. And if my memory serves me correctly, Aeolians is like a Greek god of the wind. <laughs> So, you know, even if Dice is bringing us for the stuff, it's like she pulled one on everybody. That, that is a Greek god. I mean, have your, have your uh, listeners Google that. I, I think it's A-E-O-L-I-A-N. I think it's a Greek god of the wind. And when you sing uh, the black vernacular with like, you're blowing. Mm. It's actually black, you know, sure. he or she can blow. Yeah. Um, mm. And so you're using that wind. And they also have had a lot of wind instruments and things like that. Mm. And so the Aeolians... I think had an oversized impact, but then you had other musical acts throughout the years. You know, your, your recent listeners would know of Take Six and sure. Brian McKnight and, and some of these other acts. But, you know, all throughout the years, there are consistent acts. I mean, I can name them for you, musical acts that gain great prominence. So I, I would say that this is really how Oakwood uh, gained an international uh, reputation uh, um, among other among other reasons. Let me uh, before we move on. It made me think of in Tanahasi Coates' "Between the World and Me." He talks about uh, arriving at Howard and feeling like he was. This was sort of the mecca, and he really became 
um, aware of who he was in that context. And I know that you are a uh, you have your PhD from Howard University. Can you do you mind just talking a little bit about the feeling of Oakwood University, the the impact of sort of cultural connection that's created by uh, you know someone coming from a small church somewhere and then arriving at this place that uh, seems so rich and um, interesting. Yeah, very good. There, you just have just on a, on a very elemental basis, you have all the numbers. So it's the largest conglomeration of African-American, Seventh-day Adventist, young people from, let's say, 18 to 25 in the world, hmm. all right there. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. You're usually coming, especially back in the old days, you're coming from these communities in which you're like, there's only one or two or three or four Black Adventist young people sure. in your community. And you're walking to church on Sabbath in your, in your Sabbath bests. And everyone's like, what are you doing? Why are you going to church on this day? You know, and you think you're the only one, but then you come to Oakwood and there are other black Adventist young people just like you. Mm. They ideally believe what you believe. Not saying that Oakwood is any <laughs> paradise. You know, they ideally believe what you believe and they're all there. And then you have these brilliant teachers. Yeah who have advanced degrees, they are distinguished in many ways in their fields, and they're teaching you. And so you're looking up, it's like me, I mean, I, for, a large, for a large part of my primary and secondary, secondary school education, I had few black teachers, if any. And so, you know, you, you can't, Alex, there's always this big debate over whether blacks were better off when they were segregated because once you become integrated, you may have a white teacher. Mm-hmm. And so what is it like looking up, literally looking up to a person who doesn't look like you, doesn't necessarily identify with you and may be racist. Sure. And so in Oakwood, you have black Adventist teachers. And so man, it's this environment where there are a lot of people like you who are excellent. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Sure. They, they, they literally excel and they're black Adventists just like you. Now, beyond that, it, it, it's hard to describe the dynamism of, of Oakwood University and just the virtuosity of so much there, from the preaching to the teaching to the music to the swagger. Yeah. You know, just black swagger. <laughs> I mean, how do you put it? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, how do you put How, how do you describe that? Sure. Um, like I said, the, uh, the, the excellence of the, of the teachers and like, many people in their, home, in their hometown, they did not have role models and black Adventists who were getting it like that. Mm, yeah. And so this is this little microcosm where all of this is happening and you have this constant flow of black Adventists from all over the diaspora that come to Oakwood. And it's just really high caliber. Yeah. So that's, that's what I would say is the Oakwood experience. We should also add spirituality there because uh, that's a big part of mm-hmm. the Oakwood experience. And these are mandatory chapels. Uh, in many classrooms, they pray before class begins. Mm. Uh, there is at least a 
a form of godliness that oftentimes people raised in Adventist homes don't always get. Sure. You know, especially as our as our society becomes more and more secularized. And so, I mean, when I say form, I'm saying you can still see people walking around campus with Bibles. You know, um, in at, at sundown Friday, things shut down. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, some of this stuff sounds quaint, <laughs> maybe to some of your <laughs> listeners. But, th- but there was that, and that has a very powerful effect on, on people. So these people who I'm looking up to, who are accomplished and who, who have, a, you know, worldly accoutrements and all of this stuff, they are following, you know, th- this, th- these religious, you know, yeah. you know thing, rituals, they, they are spiritual. Sure. So that's also meaningful. Yeah, modeling um, and t- and and sort of showing that they take th- you know the community seriously um, exactly. in 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 all its ways. So let's jump back to a, a question that always uh, comes up uh, when folks start talking about Ellen White and and Black Adventist history, and that is this question of um, racism and things that Ellen White said that that. Um, that raise questions about what her understanding really was and where her sympathies really um, laid. And the big question here is amalgamation. What's going on with that? Okay, let me say let me say a couple of things by way of introduction. We covered last week, a couple weeks ago, on why people thought Ellen White was black. Yeah. And the reason why black Adventists is interesting that this is coming from black Adventists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I doubt that white Adventists would say that she was black. You know, <laughs> white Adventists, they kind of want to arrogate stuff for themselves. You know, just assume everyone. She's ours. So, you know, like when they hear black Adventists say that they, they may say, oh, that's cute, you know, that, that they think that. Mm-hmm. But they, they, they kind of know that she's firmly in there, you know, in there, and she's firmly theirs. But the reason why it said what's said by Black Adventists that she was Black was because of her supportive writings and things like how she supported Oakwood, how she supported Black ministers and the Black work. Uh, Clause number six in her uh, will, her last will and testament, is that the proceeds from what Christ object lessons would go to Oakwood and the Black work. Okay, so it's these definite things that. And this is this is what the Ellen White was racist crowd really have a problem with Alex. All of her positive statements about black people. Uh, check out that Google Councils on Blacks Ellen White, and you can get the PDF that I put together of uh, 1,500 pages of what she says about black people. Now, so 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 you need to look at her statements in that light because. I know that your listeners, uh, and this is by no means condescending, but they're not going to do a deep dive into the literature, into antebellum literature or fin de siècle literature, uh, reconstruction literature, Jim Crow literature, abolitionist writings. But really to understand Ellen White and what she says about black people, you need to understand those. Yeah. The In context. many ways, she was saying what abolitionists were saying. Hmm. Uh, really, everything. I mean, Judd Lake talks about this in his book mm-hmm. um, on, on Ellen White and the Civil War, and other people have commented on it. Even her writings, Alex, on 
in which she says that it's preferable in this situation for the whites and blacks to worship separately and to evangelize separately. That is the most common thought <laughs> of the Reconstruction and Jim Crow era, the, the nadir of race relations. That she was one of many who were saying that, including black people, black leaders like mm -hmm. Booker T and W.E.B. Du Bois. I, I mean, yeah. T. Thomas Fortune, you name it. And so that can't be racist when blacks were saying the same thing. Let's discuss some of her, you know, like she says, like, you know, the, the Negroes have practices in their worship, you know, that are, that are not godly. So she talks about black. Alex, so many Northern blacks said the same thing about black, black Southerners when they were worshiping. I mean, like, it's, it's hard to say that something's racist when so many others, it, there, were, there were Northern blacks who didn't want anything to do with any sort of Southern style worship. And they were into high church and the hymns as well. Sure. So we can't get into black particularity and say, well, only blacks are like this or only mm -hmm. blacks are like that. Important There's a point, wide yeah. spectrum. There's a wide spectrum. Okay. So once again, I'm calling for any, any of your listeners who can show me a so-called racist statement by Ellen White that was not also made by black people of the day and prominent black people of the day. Great. Okay. You had Booker T. Washington and others saying like, we are, we were blessed in a way by enslavement because it brought us from the savagery of Africa into the civilization of Christianity. Like what? <laughs> I mean, so, so this is what I mean. So, so she's joining this. Her statements are very moderate. Sure, so, sure. So, okay, okay, okay. Now let's go to her amalgamation statements. I'll just give you some basics. Uh, I think she first made them in spiritual gifts or the spirit of prophecy. So those are series of books, not, not like she's the spirit of prophecy. You know, this is a series of books called spirit of prophecy and spiritual gifts. Yeah. Four volume set spiritual gifts. That kind of is the proto great controversy uh, with yeah, mixed in with early. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Series. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So she makes two statements in these, in these book, and she reproduces it in these, uh, uh, I believe spiritual gifts came first and then spirit of prophecy. Okay. But she does not reproduce this in, uh, patriarchs and prophets. And she says, if there was one sin above another and your, your readers can, um, can, can find this quote easily that caused God to, you know, send the flood. It was the amalgamation of man and beast. Okay, and then in another statement, she says that that amalgamation of man and beast is still seen in certain races today. Okay, now I consider this statement, Alice, like a Rorschach test hmm. as to how racist you are. Hmm. Okay, because some people, Alex, this is funny, Alex, you're going to laugh at this. Some people, they read that and say, oh, black people. <laughs> now, that's funny. How would you come up with that? Yeah, where did that come? Yeah, why'd you just read that? Why'd you think of black people? <laughs> even today, even today, some people can't stop talking about how that's referring to black people. It's like, what? well, she never said black people. And Alex, that's the thing. She never said black people. Okay, this is one of her, her most enigmatic statements in all of her candy. Yeah. She does have a candy. Okay, this, this is the most enigmatic <laughs> statement. And 
No one knows what she meant. We know that she took it out and it didn't get into patriarchs and prophets. So she stopped saying it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, one thing that does link it to black people, uh, you know, purportedly is that she had two detractors. I believe they were from Iowa named uh, Snook and Brinkerhoff. And they, um, like, like some, some of the early uh, defections from Adventism, they had a problem with Ellen White. Interestingly, Alex, the, these early people almost always linked Ellen White and Adventism. And they recognized, I think, what a lot of later Adventists didn't. And that, that is, to be an Adventist, you had to believe in the, 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 the ministry of Ellen White. Yeah. Well, Alex, you know, <laughs> some people want to hide that about us because they think that it makes us a cult. Sure. But come on, I, I'll argue persuasively that that was a credo, a creed, whatever you want to call it, in early Adventism. Mm-hmm. Now, revisionists are coming along later. Now, Alex, we can deal with the right or wrongness of that mm-hmm. separately, right? Sure. But that was the case. Sure. I'm positive. Okay, yeah. I, I know that a lot of your listeners will disagree. Okay, so they started attacking Ellen White, and they said, well, she said that the Negro was a mixture of, of uh, beast and human. Okay, they said that that's where, she said that that's where blacks came from. She never said that. Now, the garbled and kind of mealy-mouthed Uriah Smith came along, and I have great respect for Uriah Smith, <laughs> but in this case, not so much. Yeah. In this case, not so much. And he writes an apologia of Ellen White. And this is, this is what I'm saying. This is when I use those adjectives, not for him, but for what he wrote. Sure. He says, she never said that the Negro was a beast. You know, what, what, what are you talking about? Snook and Brinkerhoff. But then like in like the next paragraph or maybe the same paragraph, he said, but who can deny that the Negro is a mixture of man and beast? If you look at the Hottentots in Africa mm-hmm. or the Digger Indians, he mentions Indians as well. Mm-hmm. And then he yeah. mentions uh, the Malaysians. Like, okay. So he wow. says, go. He said, she doesn't say it. And then he said, but who can deny? And so, you know, I think that, and there's, there's more that I'm not saying, yeah. obviously, because this is a complex thing, because one, one of the accusations is that Snook and Brinkerhoff said that James White told them that she meant blacks. Now you can do with that what you will. I, I mean, I, I think that we're all mature enough to have an open discussion, right? Yeah. Hearsay. And Arthur White said in a letter from 1936, I believe, uh, Willie White, excuse me, Willie White, Ellen White's son, said that she once heard, now, Alex, tell me if this is not the most meaningless, meaningful statement you've ever heard. Meaningless, meaningful statement you've ever heard. Willie White said that he once heard his parents discuss if Blacks were um, mixed with animals. Hmm. Okay. I, 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 I should send you the document. Can't make sense of it because it's like, okay, yeah. Alex, you and I can have a discussion and say, of course, I can say, Alex, of course, blacks are not mixed with animals. So we're discussing it. Yeah. Or we could have a discussion. You know that some people say that blacks are mixed with animals, but that doesn't make any sense. Or we could say, hey, Alex, you know that blacks are mixed with animals. So there, there's, there's a whole range of things that we could discuss discussion is an endorsement no not at all not at all and and willie denies it out of hand 
he said that she wasn't talking about that. Mm, okay. You know, when she when she made her amalgamation statements. Yeah. Now, this is what I go on. So we can go on what Ellen White did say. And during that time, the very time she wrote amalgamation, she was arguing that slavery was of the devil. That's what she says, that Satan invented slavery and he inspired the Confederacy on the very basis that blacks are full human beings. That's why she's condemning slavery. She says they're full human beings just as much as white people and they were made in the image of God just as much as white people. So that's how she's condemning slavery mm -hmm. during that same time. So I go by what she did say. And yeah. I, I think it's one of the greatest ironies that the same time where they said that she said that blacks weren't human, she was arguing that slavery should be overthrown because they were human. Yeah. So that's what, that's what I go by. And, and I think that uh, just to, just to wrap it up, that what she meant by amalgamation was, what is it? The book of Yasher. And that's uh, four verse 17, I believe. Back then, the Apocrypha was in her Bible. The Intertestament Apocrypha was in her Bible. Yeah. And Adventists just believed in the Apocrypha. Mm -hmm. the, the Apocrypha, I think they were in most Bibles back then. Yeah. So if you can imagine that. And so she was just drawing from the book of Yashur, which talks about, you know, the amalgamation of man and beast. Um, now, you know that uh, the belief that a lot of evangelicals have now about Genesis 6, what the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. Yeah. Ellen White says that that's amalgamation. Many say that she meant that godly men got with ungodly women and that's amalgamation. You know, now a lot of evangelicals believe that that's angels mm -hmm. mating with humans. Yeah. They form the Nephilims. Mm -hmm. So people have always had funny interpretations of that Genesis 6, 1 through 3. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, even I've heard aliens, so you never, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I appreciate how you're really helping us think about the broad view uh, and the amount, the weight of evidence and where it lies and um, the documentation that you've provided, I think, uh, really buttresses uh, your point there. Since we're all... Alex, Alex, one thing if I can comment. I, yeah. I, I think one thing about this topic is that it's so shiny. Yeah. You know, and people can't let it alone because it's a fascinating conversation and people have and there's there have been beefs and avidism debates debates and avidism about this forever uh the biggest one was with frank marsh and george mccready price hmm. so these were two of avidus biggest scientists fighting yeah. about this in the 1930s and 40s and so it's so interesting because some say that amalgamation is okay uh some steroids or you know um what is that movie uh about 20 years ago maybe 10 years ago of the aliens uh, the, the, the human, oh, uh, the human, uh, what is it, Alex? You know it. Come on. I, mean, I don't watch movies. I've never yeah, been to a movie yeah, theater, yeah. Alex, but I think you have. <laughs> 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 it starts with an I've seen a. a few. It starts with uh, an A. It's, it's like humans and alien mix. Um, yeah, I'm drawing a blank here, but we'll edit it in my yeah, quick yeah, answer yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, later. But, but, um, <laughs> and then some say like the, the Stannis brothers, because, hmm. uh, you know, they're defenders of Ellen White. They were defenders. Yeah. Both yeah. Maybe one of them. Um, one of them is still alive, but they they started, their, it's the book, Greatest of All Prophets, I think. They started off their chapter on amalgamation by saying, we want to start off right off by saying that we are amalgamated. <laughs> That's what they, they, you know, they put it right out there. So you weren't going to accuse them of racism. Yeah. Um, they said, we are amalgamated. And they said, you know, we are amalgamated, amalgamated with, with man and beast, you know, white, white Australians, right? 
Australians? Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. they're yeah, Australian, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. White Australians. So they were just going to preempt any accusations of racism. And so, I mean, it's just, you know, people wonder, people think that with all this mythology, like the, the Minotaur, the Centaur, the mm-hmm. Mermaid, yeah, yeah. that there was something to this mythology and that humans were drawing from maybe what they observed. Now, someone like David Reed, I know who's a, who's a friend of Spectrum. Yes, yes. I, I, I think I'm kind of being funny, right? Is he a friend of Spectrum? Anyway, uh, David he's, Reed. He's, he he's on, in the universe. He's not alien okay. to us. Okay. He wrote a book uh, called Dino- On Dinosaurs. Yeah. And he says that that's what Ellen White meant by amalgamation. The dinosaurs. So, you know, the, the antediluvians were splicing genes. And so they were creating these new species. So it's it's a fascinating topic. It is, and was the movie Avatar? Is that what you were talking about? That's the one. That's the one. There we go. Yeah, yeah. So since we're on the topic of racism, uh, let's actually talk about some racist things that have been part of Adventist history. Um, And we're not just talking about the incredible work that you've done on Lucy Bayard. So talk us through the sort of things that stand out as these sort of. you know, moral blots in our history. Yeah, I, I, I think that racism is, as we can all tell, it's a mutative thing. That means it changes, it morphs. Uh, it's like, have you ever seen one of a feather floating in the air? Maybe it's a piece of pollen or whatever, and you try to grab it. And the second you try to grab it, it moves. Yeah. Because it's the very wind from your hand that is making it move. That's probably racism. Uh, and some of these thinkers on racism, Alex, like Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo and mm-hmm. Tim Wise mm-hmm. and, and obviously many others. They, the reason why they, they say that it needs to be kept before people's eyes is that it's never eradicated. And that the very nature of it is when you think it's eradicated, that's when it's, that's, it's still manifesting. Yes. Because, because it operates below the radar, especially since no one wants to talk about it. Yep. And so you have some subtle forms of really uh, anti-racist champions in Adventism in the antebellum period fighting against this huge evil of racism. But then in the Jim Crow and Nadir period, they're like, they're not for full equality of blacks. Yeah. Okay. So there are these textures of, of racism. We are against a positive evil. Like I'm saying positive evil, you know, like we all can see it like slavery, but when it comes to worshiping together, you literally have the same people who same Adventists who were against slavery, who are against integrated worship services. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so there, there are all of these, there are all of these different, different forms of racism. And, and you know, we, we use the term, well, they were uh, people of their time. Uh, so so it's, it, it's that, that sort of thing. But if you want to talk about racism, there are all of these new studies. I think of Michael Campbell now, mm-hmm. who's doing a paper on Adventists in the KKK. Coming out in the next issue of the journal. Okay. Stay okay, tuned. Okay, it's, okay. it's incredible. Right. Yeah. Okay. The illustrations are going to be shocking. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. What, what I would say, you know, crosses burning on campuses, all of this. What I would say about Adventist racism, really, in, in some, is that our greatest indictment is that we were never different from the world. Mm-hmm. 
the world. We were never different from them Mm -hmm. when we should have been the leaders and the exceptional ones. Sure. I think, Alex, that we didn't emphasize the love of Jesus and we're all one in Christ. And instead, we emphasized like a, a very literalistic type legalism of doctrines that only calcified racism. And we could talk a lot about how they did that, but they they made people other, you yep. know, us versus them. Yeah. Improper Sabbath keeping. And you saw everything, this black and white evil, and there wasn't love there. It wasn't about the ultimate end of the law that Jesus talks about, about how you treat people. It was about, you know, a dry formalism, whatever terms we want to use there. So it wasn't about interpersonal and relationship. This is key, Alex. This is key. It, it, I mean, this stuff breeds racism. It really did. I don't want to cut off your flow there, but, um, you know, this is the beginning of the 20th century and you have this tension between modernism, these big ideas that are out there that are disruptive, it's, it feels like to Christian leaders and congregations and the fundamentalist reaction to it. And it, caught in the middle there is this idea of the social gospel, um, Rauschenbusch, right? And so is there, you know, the it's kind of the continuation of the moral connection to Christianity that comes out of the abolitionist movement. And yet what happens, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, maybe I'm oversimplifying, is that the social gospel gets associated with modernism. And so fundamentalism, which is encroaching into Adventist uh, thought, as Michael Mm -hmm. Campbell will show over and over again um, in his forthcoming book on the 1920s, is that you have this shift and suddenly Adventism becomes uh, inwardly focused and uh, terrified of talking about any kind of social application of the gospel. That's exactly right. I mean, you, 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 you put it brilliantly. You put it absolutely brilliantly. And, and unfortunately, now, now watch this. Building on what you said, because everything you said is 100% accurate. For some reason, and I'm sure that people have explicated this, but anti-racism, and I'm saying like advocating for equal rights of Blacks, at least better rights for Blacks, civil rights, has always been linked with liberalism. Hmm. I mean, this is just the case. Sure. This, you know, uh, a lot of those abolitionists were crazy, Alex. <laughs> they I mean, were, they were like yeah. free love, utopian <laughs> societies. I mean, they were doing yeah. all sorts of things. Abolition is so interesting because even back then, you had like um, the, the free produce movement. So they're like, we're not going to buy produce produced by, you know, the slave economy. I mean, we're, we're not doing anything new these days. Yeah, you know, canceling sure. people and all that stuff. Yeah. It was all free love. Everything was back then. But anti-racism, which is godly and necessary, has always been linked with liberalism and progressivism. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine Adventists and their no tobacco, eventually no meat, no alcohol, things like this, not going to movies, they were so conservative mm-hmm. that they started decrying and sort of uh, placing themselves in contradistinction to all liberals. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I'm just taking what you said and sort of riffing on it a little bit. Yeah. So take what you said and then add this. And then there becomes like, you know, with the, with the Bolshevik revolution and all this stuff, it becomes Marxist quote unquote, or socialist because sure. blacks are poor. 
So you're trying to, for, for the most part, not, not, for the most part, so you're trying to put these poor people on equality. You still hear the Republicans make the same, the, the same, the same arguments that it's about not equality of what, uh, whatever outcome, not equality yeah. of outcome and all this stuff. Um, and um, so it's, it's, um, I should say conservatives are saying that not Republicans, conservatives, that you're trying to make these people equal when they don't deserve it. Yeah. And this is Marxism. And so you have all of the conservatives condemning Marxism. And that is the civil rights movement. They, mm -hmm. they conflate that with the civil rights movement. Yeah. So we are so conservative and in the 1940s and 50s, right with the rise of the civil rights movement, you know, all the research around questions on doctrine. Yeah. Research is, is important for me because we are trying to become simpatico yeah. and accepted by the conservative fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. Forget about all the other stuff, Alex. Let's look at this from a civil rights perspective. Just want to fit you know, in. You, know, you have all these people who are researching this and they're not interested in civil rights. Nah. <laughs> you know, treating people equally like Jesus? No. no. We're just about, you know, the, what happened with the nature of Christ? What happened, yeah. with, what happened with perfection? It's like, what about treating people? Yeah. And so we want to align to ally ourselves with conservative fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. And we finally do get that alignment. Yeah. We become somewhat simpatico. And that even increases the divide even more. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we are against civil rights. That's all in the Adventist papers of the time. Yeah. You have, you have, um, I'm thinking of uh, Nickel, I'm thinking of Cottrell, I'm thinking of these, you know, Adventist, Adventist editors. And, and uh, who? Spalding in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They are equating the civil rights movement with socialism. Directly, Alex. They're saying this is socialism. Mm -hmm. And so, you, you know, I mean, I, I think that that sort of, uh, conservatism entrenched us uh, in, in racism. What came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know, because we originally were liberals, I think. Hmm. Uh, I'm saying, you know, in terms of socially liberal, sure. socially liberal, it's like, you know, Joseph Bates, our founder, is uh, do, uh, doing anti-miscegenation? Um, anti yeah. Uh, petitions? What? <laughs> in the 1830s in Massachusetts, yeah. blacks and whites can get married. That's stark liberalism. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, we started off liberal, but then, you know, we can, we can talk about, you know, the, 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 the odyssey, but we became staunch conservatives. Let's, let's talk about this sort of linchpin. So as, as Adventism is actually in a way uh, evangelizing from the African-American uh, community, it's growing, uh, and then in the 1940s we get to the Lucy Byard um, tragedy. Can you talk about uh, what was building up there? Because so many times the you know she becomes yeah. a symbol of what's wrong in the Adventist Church and the racism that's there, the conservatism that's supporting it, the fear that's driving it as Adventism is becoming more and more institutionalized. I think it's a, an institutional story yes. as well as a story about racism. Uh, but you have written the definitive work on this. So please take us through it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, once again, you bring up, you bring up brilliant points. I would say, and we were discussing this before we went live, 
And whatever metaphor you want to use, the tip of the iceberg, the straw that broke the camel's back, it all kind of gives the same point. And that is that these things are building up and there was a catalyst and the, the eruption, if you will, was not because of the catalysts per se. It was because of the buildup mm. and the catalyst just sort of reflected what was building. And so the great migration of blacks from the South to the North or from the South to Southern cities, mm-hmm. or from the South to the West, yeah. whichever, which, whichever way. In these cities, there were so many ideas. And I think, Alex, that Adventists have always been enemies of ideas. Oh, oh, Whoa. yes. Wow. Oh, yes. Interesting. Oh, yes. Provocative yes. right oh, here. I, I, ideas are like, they're not orthodox. Mm. They'll, shape things, they'll shape things up. They challenge our doctrinal system. Mm-hmm. They trouble old ways of doing things. You know, anything like, like I, I still posit that the, uh, the digital internet revolution devastated us. I, I don't think that we were ready for that. And we were slow, so slow to respond to it. Sure. On a personal level, we all had our smartphones and, and laptops and all that stuff. Yeah. But on a denominational level, it was a lot slower. And the, I mean, this is provable. Hmm. And so um, blacks were encountering these new ideas in the cities in, during the Great Migration. And one of those new ideas was black nationalism. And that's simply, you know, black pride. Mm-hmm. And so in the South, you are getting, you know, the pride beaten out of you. Yeah. Um, and it's so hard to be proud. And, and I'm not using proud in like maybe the, the sinful traditional sense. I'm saying, my goodness, some self-respect, some yeah. racial respect, Yeah. Um, which uh, ironically, whites have always had. And so they've spoken against it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Come on now, Alex. Totally, totally. We're, we're covering some stuff here. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you don't talk about self-esteem because you've always had it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to, to, to lambast it when you have always had it. Mm-hmm. And so um, Blacks are learning about now. I mean, I'm thinking particularly in New York um, with the movements there and the Garvey movement and so many other movements, um, Detroit with the Nation of Islam and things like that. And so this is really rubbing off. This is permeating the air of the cities and blacks are around a lot of other blacks and so they're seeing black excellence. i mean there, there's a, there's so many builders of black sort of racial self-esteem and some of these early leaders that are pushing for black rights in the seventh-day Adventist church they're directly in the cities you know your doug your doug morgan and your chiefs you know your your your, your jk humphreys and a lot of others okay so they're bringing this not newfound respect, but a racial respect into Adventism and the old racist ways that have become entrenched from the South on up, they simply cannot stand anymore. So in the, in the 1920s, Adventism, several Adventist movements were denied for separate conferences. Even then they were pushing for separate conferences because they're saying, we, we, you know, we have no autonomy, we have no uh, room to move our leaders are being suppressed. There's, there's this systematic the um, glass ceiling. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So already that's, that's the case. So you see systematic racism on all levels. I'm saying at the GC and union uh, division leadership, um, educationally, 
medically, uh, all of these areas, all of these areas, systematic racism. And then you have these individual nasty incidents that just bring this out. And Bayer is just one of them. There were, there were many incidents like students on campus who there's a quota and you know, you know, the student is kept out. Other people were denied medical services um, in, in Abbas institutions. Um, GC leader, black leaders not being able to eat in the GC cafeteria. Uh, there are just a million little slights and all of these are building up. And so Lucy Byard is just the, the, um, just the perfect representation of all of that in a very nasty event that, that combine all of the, you, you know, the, the thousands of little cuts. Can you talk about um, the, what, you know, when, when there's a, a sort of symbolic tragedy like this, it, it can, it, it, it allows um, for an expression of, of, um, of pain and a desire for a change. And one of the changes that came out of her tragic death there was the formation of regional conferences. What, um, to give us some of that history. Yes, I, shortly after, and this is, this is one thing that I discovered, and the, the notion of discovery in history is really a fraught one because, I mean, how do you discover something that happened? <laughs> so, I mean, everybody who was around knew that knew. she would die anytime soon. Yeah. You know, when she was kind of turned away at the Washington Avenue Sanitarium. Yeah. She died exactly a month later. But you remember that old game when you're young? What, what's the name of the game? You know, you're all in a, in a line or telephone. Or and you say, or, yeah, telephone. Yeah, telephone. And by the time it gets to the end, it's totally different. So now, I've always suspected, Alex, that there was like a mischievous person <laughs> that totally changed. Was it. that you? But, I think it was yeah, you. <laughs> but, but, but you know, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. It can be people really trying to get it right. And so the story mutated for, you know, for different rhetorical purposes and, and things like that, and just natural retelling, you know, that she was rejected at Washington Sanitarium. And then on the taxi ride to the Freedmen's Hospital, she got pneumonia or she had pneumonia and she died because of a chill and, you know, in DC in September. Yeah. And so she ended up living a month longer. She was in the Howard University Hospital. She had liver cancer. But the big movement that I think really catalyzed regional conferences, um, the, it's really hard to say, and I'm blanking on it, but it, it was the worldwide advancement of the worldwide colored people. It was, it was a group of okay. people in Washington, D.C., with some very notable names like Alan Anderson, Eva B. Dykes was a part of it, uh, Valerie Justice, later Vance, so uh, Addison Pinckney, who would be the, be the future president of uh, Oakwood College. So a lot of lay people got together just a couple of days after, maybe a week after Lucy Byron was turned away. Mm. So it was even before she died. Okay. And that's an important note that it yeah. wasn't her death that did it. Sure. It was the act of turning it her away. It was the act. It was the act. And, you know, research has brought out that it was indeed racism. 
It was nasty racism because the GC treasurer who was on the board, uh, I believe he was the chair of the board, W.L. Nelson, and Robert Hare, the white Australian who was the medical director of Washington, they went into full racist mode, hmm. uh, Alex, in their correspondence. Because wow. it was just them. And they're like, well, there's the Sligo Creek is separating us from the black settlement, separating our hospital from the black settlement. And it's not wide enough. Wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, we need more than that that's just set. And then, you know, there were things that were off-color things like, yeah, well, you know how the blacks are. You know, you, you let them in your meetings and they're sitting in the back at first. And then they're right there in the front with you and they want to be next to you and all this stuff. It was just contempt. Incredible. It was just dripping with, with just racial contempt. And so these were the people that denied her entrance. Sure. So, you know, it was obviously, uh, you know, just despicable racism. And so the, the, the grassroots movements uh, and her church in New York City, they sent McElhaney a protest note. And they all signed it. It was a signed protest note. And they said, if you don't pay for her medical expenses and get everything right, what did they say? They said, we're going to sue you. Hmm. And so it, there, there were a lot of different movements that were rising up and all over her, you know, being turned away at the Washington Adventist Sanitarium. Now, these, this was such a PR disaster. I mean, you know how Adventists are. <laughs> They're trying to smooth it over <laughs> so that we look okay. Yeah. You know, in, in the eyes of the world, so that yeah. we look okay. Uh, but they all realized that these incidents were counterproductive. And the secular press was reporting on them, especially the black press of the day. Uh, and they were they were reporting on these incidents, and even the loyal colored ministers like your, your, your G. Peters and others, they were saying something needs to be done and we need to consider regional conferences mm. because by then everybody knew we are being held back. We don't have any schools yeah. uh, you know, I mean, in, in the North. We don't have any schools in the North, but we can't attend white schools. No hospitals in the North. Um, mm. We are being systematically discriminated against. This is having a totally uh, you know disheartening effect and it's just hindering the adventist cause among black people and so through through a lot of other 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 developments like they were appealing the the grassroots movements were appealing directly to michelhaney and so consensus kind of turned before then like i said in the 19 what like 1909 in 1921, 1929, people had suggested regional conferences, separate black conferences, but it shifted after the Bayard event and all the grassroots movements to the popular consensus was let's have separate conferences. Hmm. And this was a radical thing because, you know, what if, what if blacks failed? Sure. This, this, was, this was the racist thought, Negroes, are not equipped, smart enough, whatever, to run their own stuff. That was behind all of it. Now we can talk about, you know, racial psychology, how there was intimidation, you know, and all this stuff, mm -hmm. uh, racial intimidation. I'm saying, you know, from whites for blacks. Yeah. yeah. Um, but could blacks pull it off? And that was that was a live question. And you know, it it happened easily. They they easily pulled it off. Not yeah. not that there wasn't a struggle, but they easily pulled it off. 
that's why you know I can't stand the talk of of getting rid of regional. Uh, I have an article coming out in the next issue of the journal um, uh, that uh, uses a statistical analysis to show how successful uh, regional conferences have been. Uh, so it's a, I think it'll be really uh, provocative for folks to read. Now, is that is that Isaac Palmer who wrote that? Yeah, Isaac okay, Palmer. Okay, there we go. Yeah, there you yeah. Go. Good. Good, yeah. Good, good, good Thanks for uh, giving me some feedback on it, by the way. Yes. So let's um, let's jump into you, you know, there's you, you've given us the history of regional conferences, and you just ended there by saying that uh, I'm putting words in your mouth, but you get a little irritated when people um, don't understand the role that they've they've played and sort of have a knee jerk reaction to them. Why are they not an example of segregation? Yeah, well, just to comment a little bit on the, on the context these days, these days the context is that you, you get rid of any history that doesn't match the present standards, mm. right? With the destruction of the statues and all that stuff. And I mean, I'm, sure. some of this stuff I'm 100% for. Sure. I kind of question things like, okay, you're going to get rid of the Ulysses Grant statue? <laughs> yeah. Lincoln statue? Some of them are like, okay, well, hold on. Grant was, you know, he's one of my top, whatever, five presidents. But anyway, oh, yeah. Legend. Um, yeah, you, you, you know, so some of these things, but moral purity versus maybe a question of utilitarianism here, Alex. Which I know that you study postmodernism, and it's it's something, isn't it? Because you know, you kind of go from okay, this is this is why I bring in I, I bring in the the postmodern angle because it seems that there's more judgmentalism than ever before, kind of puritanism ism if anything it's my ism mm. you know it may not be fascism or communism or whatever but mm. it's my ism and i'm judging everything by my standard throughout all of history mm -hmm. and if it doesn't match we're we're getting rid of it sure. i just asked my students the other day i said a hundred years from now what are people going to look back on us and say that we got wrong and cancel us into oblivion over Mm -hmm. It's a really good question. You know, is it the rare earth in our phones that people <laughs> is it yeah. all the meat eating we're doing? You know, I mean, what? Sure. We're going to get canceled for something. Yeah. But, you know, many can play at this game. Yep. And so that's that's what I think is it is happening. That not to, not to impugn anyone, because I think a lot of people have good motives, but it's saying that we are going to get rid of everything in the past, but having no critique of like Michel Foucault's ideas of power. Yeah. Which th that's a, a good postmodern author that, you know, you need to look at power. So if you, if you're talking about dismantling something, what are you going to replace it with? And how is that new system, that new power system going to be any different from the old? Yep. I think Foucault would say that it won't be. You have to there direct, is, you have to direct that power. It doesn't go away. Yeah, 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 and, and I mean, there's, there's no good power. It, 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 it has to become corrupt. Now, maybe I'm mis misreading Foucault, but it, it has to become corrupt necessarily. That's why our church originally said no organization, because they were, they were very postmodern in that way. They said all of these organiza organizations become beholden to these larger interests. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a good critique. That's yeah. a real postmodern critique, but I think it's a good critique. And so... They're saying that because regional conferences had a racial origin, that they should be dismantled. 
Okay. Now, very rarely do you have some of these advocates with what they would replace it with and what their plans are. Because, you know, you, you have a lot of practical considerations like people's jobs, regional yeah. conferences, and, and the retirement other plans, Those which have been people. very successful. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, and the racial situation of the regional conferences, I feel, are different, is vastly different from what it was in the 1940s. Now, regional conferences have many uh, Caribbean Blacks. They have many Latinx. They have mm -hmm. many Asian congregations. This, this is a fact. This is a fact. In the white conferences, many Caribbean Blacks, African, African, uh, you know, African Americans, uh, Hispanics also, Latinx also, Asians also. Mm -hmm. And so you can't say that one conference is white and one conference is black. Now the leadership is all mixed up. Like the conference right next to me, Potomac Conference, Pastor Charles Tapp, he's black and, he, you know, mm -hmm. and he's the president. What, you have four of nine of the division presidents are black. Mm -hmm. The NAD president is black. So I think it's one of those things, Alex, that has, and, and I don't want to be disingenuous, regional conferences are still majority black, but I don't think that we can make those easy racial divisions like we once could. I think it's grown up past its racial origins, hmm. racist origins. That's what I would say. But I would say that you should never penalize Black people, because Black people always wanted to integrate with whites. You guys, Alex, you guys had better facilities. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, really, it's like, you see those old pictures like the, of like the, of the drinking fountains? Yeah, sure. The black, the black drinking fountain was purposely rickety. Like, white people made it, <laughs> made it subpar. So you had better, you, know, you had better facilities. Yeah. So, you know, you, blacks always wanted to integrate. And so, don't penalize the Black institution. Yeah. You know, for the, because for the structural of, racism, yeah, uh, uh, of that existed. So, that, yeah, I mean, those are just some of my thoughts. That, that's not the complete thought because I've heard all sorts of people say, even some regional presidents. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that at one point we should get to a place where we want to look at the organizational structure again. I've heard a lot of respected people say that. Um, so, I'm, so I mean, I'm, I'm not totally dismantling that, but I'm saying that you know, I, I'm not for. It. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking through that um, that history and and the, the nuances around it. Let's jump up to the civil rights movement as a way of talking about um, Adventists um, getting involved again. Uh, you know, it connects to the origins of Spectrum um, in the 1960s, and you have. You know, folks like Malcolm X who have a connection to Adventism and Adventists start to um, to develop a, a kind of con a, a conscious connection between the claims they're making about the the Jesus that they follow and their um, their need to um, form. Um, some kind of community that reflects heaven here on earth. So I'm a little high-minded there, but I want you to talk about the way that Adventists were um, sort of famously involved and what that, uh, how that affected the, the kind of black Adventist experience. Yeah, first of all, you mentioned the, the origins of Spectrum, and I, I do want to give, you know, give props to Spectrum because as, as good liberals, Alex, you all have always... I think been been good 
on on publishing, you know, items, articles, black authors on civil rights and black issues. And you can look back to spectrum the 60s and 70s um, on up to the present. And so it's it's always been excellent on that. So you may I honor that part of I honor that part of a spectrum's tradition. And there's um, always on, more. There's always more. Yeah, 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 definitely, 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 definitely. Then that 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 needs to be said. But you're you're exactly right. Thanks. Uh, but just to comment on Adventists in the civil rights movement, there is an interesting dynamic among Black Adventists, and that is they're getting these pronouncements from on high. On high, I mean, like the General Conference and the divisions and the unions that you should not be involved in the civil rights movement. It is socialist. It is uh, disruptive. Think of the six Christian ministers and Jewish rabbi who wrote in the Birmingham paper that now was not the time. Let's yeah. keep Birmingham peaceful. And then King got that and he wrote the letter from the Birmingham jail. <laughs> yeah. So think of Adventist ministers as those seven clergy. Okay, so they're saying it's disruptive. Even at Oakwood, you had this. Because think of you're over a school, you don't want students getting arrested. Even back then, Alex, in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, it was controversial getting children and young people involved in the civil rights movement. They could get killed. They could get blasted sure. by a hose oh. and get head injuries. Uh, they could get a, a jail record. I mean, why, why, why would you want this for a kid? Yeah. And so, yeah, Oakland students were saying, don't do it. You know, you, for for a lot of different reasons, and some of them not not that not that irrational. Okay, but what I was saying is that when the word came from my high that black that people should not Adventists should not be involved in the civil rights movement, blacks had a problem, and that was black Adventists have always been a lot more integrated in their communities than. Probably white Adventists. Yeah. A civic engagement we're talking about here, right? Yeah. yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they know who their local politician is. And a lot of uh, white Adventists are kind of clueless about that. You know, the only and, the only engagement they do with the community is trying to invite them over for a uh, an evangelistic series or a, yeah, right, or right, a health right, food uh, right. <laughs> demonstration. Well, and, and it even goes it even goes further than that. It's like this. It's it's like when you experience racial discrimination you're directly coming in, in into contact with politics yeah and so every black was experiencing this uh even if some blacks were minor because you know like a lot of black parents studies have shown in just oral history interviews that i've done your parents would uh cocoon you from that you know what I, mean? I mean i mean they would keep you from that virulent racism yeah, that was right outside. And like my mother's mother, she would tell my mom, you always drink from the white fountain. You know, you never drink from that subpar fountain, the colored fountain. Hmm. So, you know, you have all these wow. dynamics. Yeah, a you little know, bit of resistance I, there. Yeah, political yeah, yeah, resistance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that, that happened a lot. But my point is, is that just as a normal black person, you were always exposed to the politics of racism. And so you were always part of it. You, you couldn't ignore it. So I think whatever the rhetoric was from on top, whatever the pronouncements were from on top, from the General Conference and other places, that Blacks were always going to be involved in this. 
as you as you just characterized my grandmother's advice, that is that there are all types of forms of civil rights activism. That act in, uh, in, in and of itself was subversive. And you have myriad other acts. In fact, um, the, the literature on abolitionism is really robust right now. And there's like parochial abolitionism. And this is an interesting one for your listeners, Alex, because this is saying that just as a pastor of a church, th th this is what parochial abolitionism posits, that just as a pastor of a church, when you are uplifting your black members in certain ways, let's say employment, finances, education, that old abstemiousness, mm -hmm. things like that, that that is a form of abolitionism because you are bettering them. Okay, mm -hmm. very interesting, very interesting theory. Sure. Very interesting theory. So if, if there is a oppression, if there is a white supremacy oppression and there are a lot of different ways you can rise from that oppression, like getting educated. That's civil rights. That's abolitionism. Alex, I buy that. Yeah. I, I, I actually buy that thinking. I actually buy that thing. Oh, oh, oh okay, okay, okay. So to, so to finish, um, blacks were, black Adventists were inevitably involved in the civil rights movement because of that. They were in communities that were systematically oppressed by whites. They were encountering, you know, these, these racial slights every day. So they had to be involved. I mean, I, I would say many tried to go out of their way to not be involved, but others kind of like, you know, they just <laughs> you know, right into it, it and, others just, and others just ran into it. Yeah. Okay. So that's the spectrum. And I could outline you know, blacks from black Adventists from all different parts of the spectrum, some of them overtly being involved in civil rights. I'm thinking of like a Seville Brown who is setting up and being presidents of NAACP, you know, back when it was really not to cast aspersions on them, but back when it was essential and really active, you, you know, yeah. in, in black communities. Mm -hmm. um, I, I always mention Irene Morgan. Of course, there is a uh, Terrence Roberts of the Little Rock Nine. He's a 13-year-old Black Adventist. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, imagine that. He's mm, not... Incredible. He's not a Malcolm X. Yeah. He just... His parents and him decided that you're going to attend Little Rock Central High. Um, and that's, like, one of the most epic, you know, civil rights... Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he's, he's a Seventh-day Adventist. You know, he was a 13-year-old Seventh-day Adventist. And so it, it's, it's, it's all along the spectrum. But I would say that Black Adventists got involved for one, one, one quick thing. I was going to say Black Adventists got involved uh, just like anyone else. When you really interview people, interview Blacks and whites for that matter, from the 50s and 60s, you will find that it's probably just like it is now. The average Black person, the average white person was not involved in the Black Lives Matter protests. Does that make sense? Sure. So, yeah. so, I mean, we want to ask, just because you lived back then, you were Stokely Carmichael. Mm -hmm. No, it's just like it is now. The, the, the vast majority of people are not involved in any overt civil rights activism. Yeah. It was just the way back then. So I think that sometimes, once again, we hold Adventists to too high of a standard because we're like, oh, they weren't involved in civil rights activism. Where are you involved today? 
if you aren't involved today, then you can't really criticize them for not because I think that the way of humanity is just to go along with the system. Sure. Homeostasis. Yes. Yes. As it is. So I would probably tell you, Alex, that in the end, I don't have any scientific studies to back this up, but there were probably roughly the same amount of black evidence involved in civil rights activism as any other group of black people. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Talk to me about uh, Malcolm X a little bit. What's what's the connection there, and and why do you know um, why is that why is that uh, significant? Yes, yes. Malcolm X. I'm trying to get my dates here. Born in 1927. I hope I'm correct. Wow. Uh, around 1936. Uh, his mother. Okay, just a little bit of background. Um, his father was good evidence that he was killed by white terrorists, uh, a, a white terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. And he was very uh, brutally murdered. I think mm. they, they put it, uh, chopped his body in half or whatever and put him on the train tracks in Lansing, Michigan. And Lansing is the headquarters of the Michigan Conference. Yeah. And so this is an Adventist heavy area. Mm -hmm. And so um, Malcolm X's um, mother, and for some reason, man, I can't, I can't remember anything today. <laughs> you've been, come on, you, give me name. Come on you've, name. you've pulled like 25 names oh, <laughs> in the name. last hour. It's incredible. Why am I blanking on this? I, I know this like second, second nature. <laughs> oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. What, what in the world? Okay. Thank you. Louise Little. Okay. Uh, Louise Little, Malcolm X's mother, because of course Malcolm is Malcolm Little. Uh, Louise Little has what nine children to raise now on her own. Yeah, and she's widowed and she's on her own, and she is getting just and this is this is big in the literature of of um, black people who are being hounded by state services. Mm -hmm. So the what is it? I forget. Child Protective Services of sure. day are are really saying you're not a fit mother and they're trying to split up their family. Um, I, I think for a lot of nefarious purposes. You, the New York Times has a story out uh, today or yesterday that I just saw really briefly about a father who um, his child was taken away from him and he and put in a foster home and he had a year long legal battle, which he um, I th just won um, or recently won in which he basically was arguing that poverty doesn't equal child abuse. See, exactly, exactly. And so that's, that's what she's facing. Nine kids all by herself. And, and this is why I give that context. Adventist helped her during this time. Then that's essential. Hmm. That's essential. Yeah. A lot of times your religious affiliation is about who helped, who got to you first sure. or who helped you yeah. when you were in need. So she was in need and the Adventist helped her. I think, you know, definitely they provided a community for her. Um, they took her to camp meetings, which is just, you know, just the Lansing camp meeting. I mean, you know, the Michigan camp meetings right there. Mm -hmm. um, so young Malcolm X, he's like nine years old. He says, we would go to a camp meeting. And he, he doesn't give white people too many compliments in his autobiography. Yeah. But he does give the Adventist compliments. He said they were the nicest white people I ever met. 
So he has good things to say about the Adventism. He said that they kind of smelled funny. So we, <laughs> we get that a lot from the documents, you know, white people smelling funny. Uh, I'm joking, kind of, kind of. But um, they smell funny and they believe that we were living in the last days, but they were nice. They were the nicest white people we knew. And so mm-hmm. his mother stopped eating pig. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the neighborhood thought they were crazy. So she, she was a real Adventist. She was a real Seventh-day Adventist. That is mm-hmm. a fact. Mm-hmm. She's a real Seventh-day Adventist. And for a while, Malcolm X grows up in a Seventh-day Adventist home. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, I mean, he, he, he makes his statements. Now, she got into a relationship with a man that seems like he sort of, Malcolm says that he jilted her. Mm. And as often happens, I think, from relationships, that can kind of take a mental situation that may be tenuous. I mean, you know, her husband is brutally murdered. Yeah. She's taking care of nine kids by herself. Um, You know, she's, she's being hounded by the state authorities. I mean, just this tremendous pressure. And then she's in this relationship that she gets heartbroken. Yeah. And so, Malcolm talks about how she had a mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Alex, there's the politics of uh, of calling black people insane. There's a long history of that. That's kind of dubious, but it seemed like she did have some sort of breakdown. Sure. And so for the next 25 years, she was in a mental institution. Yeah. So that's that's Malcolm X. And, and so he goes to another family after she's out of the picture. And then we kind of know what happens. You know, he got into the street life. He goes to prison. And he becomes uh, he joins a nation of Islam. Yeah. So that was his that was his time with with Seventh Day Adventists. Thank you so much for uh, recounting that. Uh, I think since we started out with talking about th- this, what has led to um, African American Adventists flourishing, let's uh, turn back to that question in a sort of you know. It, this se- might seem like a frivolous question, but I think it actually gets us something deeper here through this this struggle and history that you've been recounting. Um, why are there so many famous Black Adventists? <laughs> In Adventism, there is a... Adventism has a cerebral nature that these are just some of the things that have been positive. I, I, you know, I don't know if there's anything to them because, you know, a lot of these people. Sure. Yeah. Let me just shift and say this. A lot of these famous black Adventists, one time erstwhile Adventists, yeah. they were famous despite yeah. Adventism. I mean, like everything about Adventism, mm-hmm. <laughs> they abhorred. I'm thinking of Richard Wright. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, I'm thinking of a tribe called Quest, like like Fife and and Q-Tip are like, we couldn't listen to yeah. worldly music because they're they're Caribbean and they're Seventh-day Adventists and they live in New York City. So their parents are definitely trying to shield them. You know, the, the, the traditional Caribbean parents who are trying to shield their child from the evils of New York City. Okay, and they're Seventh-day Adventists. So you can imagine that. So they're like, no worldly music and um five can't do anything he says from friday night to saturday night things were shut down like we couldn't do anything but five. 
you know, fight. You know, he's, he's dead like now. Classic right? teenager complaint. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like we couldn't do anything but Bible. Okay, so yeah. how does fight? How do fight and Q-tip both Seven Day Adventists go to Linden Seven Day Adventist School? Everything. How do they become? Yeah, these giants in hip hop. It's not because of Adventism, I don't think. Yeah. You, you know, Buster Rhymes the same way. Buster Rhymes, Caribbean parents in New York City. And, you know, in some of his rhymes, he's like, you know, beep Adventists. You, you know what I'm saying? He doesn't have anything to do with it. And so a lot mm-hmm. of this is like breaking out and you are that despite Adventism. Yeah. And so, Alex, I don't know if I can posit any theories as to why some now you could talk to a a ben carson a whitley phipps uh, a barry black and ask them of the role of adventism in their lives and the answer may be mm. somewhere there you know what i've heard is like the discipline of adventism mm-hmm. um the uh, affirmation that you are special uh, the cerebral nature, the education mindedness of it, that these give you an edge that you may not have. Uh, but beyond that, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely uh, an, an interesting part of history. You, you know, um, as historians like you have pointed out, you can go back to Arno Bontemp graduate of PC becomes involved with the Harlem Renaissance all the way up to so many um, incredible cultural um, influencers to today who come out of this black Adventist history. Um, Well, it's been great talking with you. So, uh, so much uh, territory covered today. Thank you. Uh, It's amazing to see you pull names, dates, places out of your head there so it's uh it's been really great talking with you and thank you so much for the legacy of your work in uh, blacksdahistory.com and dot i'm sorry dot org thank you and i'm looking forward to talking with you again soon definitely thank you for having me the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely